Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. Uh, my name is Andre Gonoella. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. Uh, we are so happy to be joined by Janet Reitman, who is a contributing author at New York Magazine, a very great journalist. Uh, she was the author of Inside Scientology, one of the first sort of inside scoops on Scientology and some of the controversies associate, associated. Uh, she also covered the war in Iraq for Rolling Stone, has done a range of uh, articles on a range of wide topics including uh, on sort of a Haiti, the Duke lacrosse scandal, uh, the death of American aid worker Maria Ruzica in Baghdad. And uh, she is currently working on a book on extremism. And she also had a great article recently, maybe two years ago, actually, on how law enforcement missed uh, sort of the rise of the far right and some of these domestic terror groups. An article that's going to sort of form the basis of a conversation with her as we try to understand what led up to the uh, the attack on the Capitol last Wednesday or two Wednesdays ago. So, Janet, we're so happy to be joined by you. And I guess before the first thing we should really start with is what, in your view, is the far right? First of all, hi, and thank you for having me. Um, the far right, so there's a government... There's a government answer to this question. There's a kind of official description, which is a, is a group of hyphenates, militia, various types of extremists, militia people, militia extremists, white supremacist extremists, people who are anti-abortion. Um, I, I, I sort of put it in a different um, frame, which is I, I look at the far right as an assortment of different movements or strains that promote in general um, an extreme view of America as a fundamentally white nation, right? It's, it, I, I view the far right as, as a, a movement that is, that is oriented around a view of America as, um, as, as, as a fundamentally white Anglo-Saxon country set up to, um, to support a white male sort of status quo and is deeply threatened by anything that that challenges that, um, which would be any 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 non-white ethnic group, women, LGBT people. I mean, it, 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 you know, pick your range. Um, but that's that's what I that's what I see it as, and it, it includes you know a whole bunch of different um, sort of strains within that. Whether you want to look at neo Nazis or or um, Sort of race, racist clans, clansmen, or anti-government militia types, but they all are oriented around this sort of a, this general idea. Well, thanks, Janet. I, I mean, I generally agree with with kind of how you lay that out, but I think what's very interesting about it is that there are you know individuals who subscribe to this far right ideology, who are a part of these far right extremist groups that are non-white individuals that are maybe are non-Christians. Some are women. Yeah. And so what, what do you make of this kind of diverse makeup of the far right? It seems completely contradictory. It is weird. I mean, I don't, there are non-white individuals that are part of the far right. I don't really understand, to be, to be honest with you, I don't understand why. Um, but um, women have always been a part of, of the far right. In fact, they've driven aspects of the far right. If you go back to Ruby Ridge, for example, which is, which was this incident in 19, uh, so 1992 or 1993, my, my dates are wrong now. I think it was either 92, I think it was 92, um, 
that was, you know, a standoff between law enforcement and these um, Christian identity, um, you know, sort of anti-government, apocalyptic extremists. Um, and in, um, in, in Idaho, the mountains of Idaho. And, um, this was a, this was actually a standoff that was always cast as between, um, a guy named Randy Weaver, who was, who was, you know, the, the husband and who was a Vietnam vet and law enforcement, but it was really driven by his wife, Vicki, who was a, who was a fervent believer and believes that God had called them to this mountain to have a standoff with the government. Um, and so, you know, women are often like, they, they, they often drive this movement. They often are um, um, key supporters in the movement. And um, there's actually, there's a lot of writing on, on that. Um, but you don't, I, I don't think that you have to be, um, you don't, you don't have to be white and male to, to support a system that is, that is a status quo system that has, you know, that is to the benefit of, you know, white men. I mean, I, I I don't want to put it, I don't want to kind of like continue in that way, but I mean, it's the far right backs a system that has existed in America without, um, and, and has been challenged increasingly over the years by every, every other group. Anybody who is not a white male has had to litigate their way or lobby their way or protest their way to some sense of to, to equality. And I think, you know, in the far right, it has opposed that historically. Doesn't mean that some non-white people don't, don't join the movement. Um, and again, I, I have, I mean, because, because some of, because there are strains of the movement that, um, that are single issue, obviously. So anti-immigration would be one anti-abortion would be one. So you'll find plenty of people who oppose, you know, immigration or illegal immigration or oppose abortion. And they could be white or not white. But I think the underpinning of the far right is white supremacist. Certainly. And I think uh, one thing that we've seen since uh, the attack on the Capitol is that some people on the right wing, not the far right, but perhaps in the Republican Party, have a not try to ex- perhaps try to excuse it in certain ways by talking about the far left. Uh, some people have accused Antifa, which, as Christopher Ray's FBI has noted, is not a organization but an ideology. But some people have tried to accuse Antifa of you know doing the same uh, things and whatnot. But clearly, I feel like there is a threat differential. And in your view, what is the threat differential between the far right and the far left? Uh, how are these two, I guess, different in terms of organization? And uh, do they pose a similar threat? Are they just on different playing fields? Well, I mean, first of all, I think Christopher Ray. I've got to give him credit for, for saying that Antifa is not an organization. It's an ideology. Um, Antifa is just, um, it's, it's an abbreviation for anti-fascist or anti-fascism. And and it's a very loose kind of assortment of different types of people oriented around this idea of, of opposing fascism. Um, the far right, while I've talked about it as a kind of the movement writ large, is comprised of actual organizations, militia groups, um, neo-Nazi groups, white supremacist groups. Um, you know, we saw a lot of those representatives at, in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, 
Um, you know, those are actual groups. And Antifa is, is not. I don't see Antifa as, as, a, as a threat at all. Um, you know, I, I, um, I don't think that they have, perp- you know, perpetrated domestic terrorism. Um, I think that this is a, um, it's a way of shifting blame onto, um, onto the left, which is historically what the far right has done. And not just here, but in, in other countries, if you look at Nazi Germany, this is what they did, you know, during the Reichstag fire was blamed on, on the communists. The rise of, of, of Hitler to some degree or another was, was blamed. Um, you know, the, it, it was empowered by this blaming of, of the, con, of the communists of, you know, that Hitler protected Germany from communism. Um, there's a, there's always this fear of the left and fear of socialism and fear of communism that drives the far right and, and, and is a way to sort of breach that gap with the mainstream. And I think that Antifa and the basically Black Lives, the Black, if you want to just look at the, the most recent examples, the Black Lives Matter protests and the white people that came out in support of that, um, or the white people and black people and all people who came out to confront um, the Unite the Right marchers in Charlottesville, um, you know, the, they have been cast by the right as the bad guys. I don't. Uh, you know, I just I don't I don't see that whatsoever. So I, I want to bring in terrorism uh, into this conversation. It's a charged word. Even you know when we talk about domestic terrorism, it's even more charged. And you know, seemingly without a, a solid definition, I think that's probably one of the the main challenges to this conversation that the country's having and is it has been having since um, really I, I'd say since Charlottesville. Just given the gravity of the event, that's really come into the the, the public consciousness in the United States. And so, so Janet, how do you kind of conceptualize domestic terrorism? We, we of course, know all about foreign terrorism given the post-9-11 war, uh, global war on terror, um, but we, we haven't really kind of decided upon what domestic terrorism means. And so how, how do you think about it? Well, I think of terrorism in general. Um, terrorism is a really, has been a, is a very politicized word, right? You know, prior to 9-11, it was an actual act. It was something that, you know, terrorism was an action. You know, a suicide bombing was an act of terrorism. A plane hijacking was an act of terrorism. After 9-11, it became a kind of a political project, (laughs) fighting terrorism, which meant a whole bunch of things that had nothing to do with violence, you know, that had to do with, um, with the expansion of security in this country, with with um, protecting this country from perceived enemies um, in the name of terrorism, and which included a lot of civil rights violations, in my view. Um, so, I think um, I'm I'm I always worry about that term because it has like kind of this political connotation to it, and the way I look at terrorism is. Um, you know the fundamental idea behind terrorism is to is to is to sh- is to change to change the way a society that you dislike is doing things right like osama bin laden's goal was to upend the west was to upend our culture 
make us in quote, you know, in some ways less free, quote unquote, right? Less, less secure. And that worked, you know, and that is exactly what's happened. Whether we're less, we are less secure with ourselves, country. Um, and we've oriented ourselves around the issue of security, which is not the way it had been prior. That was not, you know, the, the most important thing to American citizens was security, national security. There's many other things. So I think domestic terrorism, you know, is, um, is motivated by a desire to, imp- to affect massive social change. Timothy McVeigh's uh, Oklahoma, you know, bombing of the Murrow Building in Oklahoma City was was an he he intended that to spark a conversation around the way the government had 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 dealt with, um, you know, Waco with Ruby Ridge. I mean, this was he was he did that to wake people up to what he felt was a huge problem. Um, you know, this incident at the Capitol has had a profound impact on members of Congress who refuse to vote to impeach Donald Trump, allegedly, because they're afraid their constituents could actually kill them. So I think that that qualifies as an act of terrorism. Um, you know, but it, it's, I, th- I worry about the conversation of terrorism when I think we have to have a conversation around what's motivating all of this and how we change that. So you mentioned security, obviously, about how after 9-11, we became very security centric. We had this sort of, uh, I guess, a culture of fear to an extent, right? Like it was a culture shift in terms of the paradigm. And obviously, you know, when we're looking at international terrorism, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, we have the intelligence community, the CIA, and all of the other sort of arms of the DOD and so on. When we're looking at domestic terrorism, you know, the CIA is not really dealing with that. It's our local law enforcement, the FBI, and uh, so on. And uh, you did a really interesting and great article about two years ago about how law enforcement sort of missed the ball on the right wing, on on the rise of the far right and, uh, you know, the far right and domestic terrorism as associated with that. And uh, for our listeners, we'll be linking that article in our description for this episode. But Janet, could you sort of give us a rundown of how this sort of came to be, how law enforcement sort of missed the ball on that? And uh, if there's been any progress since you wrote that article? I don't think it's a, you know, I've actually kind of reevaluated that thesis a little bit um, since I wrote that article. Um, I, I don't think they missed the ball as much as just didn't really look at it very closely. Um, you know, I, 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 the FBI has always looked at domestic terrorism and, um, at various times they've looked at it really seriously. Um, they did a very good job in the nineties, you know, arresting, rounding up militia groups and, um, breaking them up and putting their members in jail and, and, they kind of clamped down on the militia movement. That was really a problem in the late mid to, mid to late 1990s, these violent militia groups. Um, so it's, it's, um, but I think that, you know, since 9-11, um, the, the, the focus of the United States, you know, national security um, infrastructure, I mean, the entire like apparatus, all these agencies, all the private contractors, 
Um, I mean, it's a massive, massive apparatus. All of that has been oriented around international terrorism. And there's been very little money for um, for domestic terrorism. There's been very little um, political reward for, domestic, for focusing on domestic terrorism. Um, it's not really a pathway to promotion to focus on domestic terrorism. Counterterrorism is about international terrorism. And if you can, you know, so it's a kind of a self-reinforcing system that, you know, there's not a whole lot of political will. Um, there's not a lot of institutional, you know, incentive. There's not, um, there's not much of a professional incentive. There's not much money. Um, there's not as many people that are assigned to these jobs. And so what happens is you just don't have the focus. And, um, and then in addition to that, which is something that I think gets missed a lot, you know, law enforcement itself, like local law enforcement, they get these trainings on counterterrorism. Um, and they have focused intensely on Muslims over the years, whether or not they, these local cops are having a, an issue with jihadists or not. I mean, you know, you, 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 you have, you know, cops in the middle of, you know, remote parts of say Montana who are doing these law enforcement trainings around, you know, the, the potential of, 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 you know, jihadis, you know, trying to impose Sharia law or something like that, um, which is, in, is ridiculous. You know, they, they were probably, you know, these are pockets of the country where there, there, there are no Muslims, there are no black people, there are no Jewish people. Um, and that's not going to happen. But the, what there are, are some really radical um, anti-government types, sovereign citizens, militia guys, heavily armed people like that. And they have not been able to get that level of support from the government in terms of just giving them information, training them about who these guys may be. Um, and and so there's that system too. And, and there's a kind of almost like a, a, an industry around um, counterterrorism training, counterterrorism, um, you know, conferences, seminars, all this stuff. And, and so it, it's, 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 a, you know, it's, it's honestly like a huge, it's not just not to say that it's not an important thing. It's not, we don't need to keep our country safe, that these groups are not a threat, but it's an industry. <laughs> um, it's, pro, it's, it's profitable. It's been the business of the federal government for a long time now. It's been the focus of the federal government for a long time now. Um, and that, that just does not exist for domestic terrorism. And I think, you know, in order for, um, I mean, because the result of that has been when incidents happen, like sort of these, um, not like sort of the post-Charlottesville, Charlottesville, and then many of the post-Charlottesville events that happen, and the pre-Charlottesville events that happen, these kind of um, protests or um, or, or rallies that were kind of associated with this, you know, the so-called alt-right. Um, they would hold stage these various events. They would, they would, um, they would speak on college campuses, which were sure to, you know, elicit protests. Um, and the campus police and local police didn't have any idea what to do in that situation. And they didn't, they didn't know who to talk to. The FBI didn't seem to be able to give them much information. They didn't have much information from DHS. You know, they're going to the internet and finding out, you know, who is who and what kinds of guns should we expect them to bring. And I mean, the lack of intelligence in this was really profound. And that that's a result of, of, of 
a lack of will and lack of focus. So it's not just, it's not sort of taking your eye off the ball because that, that suggests that the eye had been at one point very much on the ball. And while it had been to some degree, it hasn't been in a really long time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, I mean, certainly I, I think the, the incoming administration, the Biden administration will reprioritize or maybe reorient the U.S. government to more fully and adequately address this threat. I mean, particularly, you know, the Department of Homeland Security um, has quite a bit of funding and I certainly could, you know, redistribute some of its its resources to addressing this threat more forcefully. Um, but but Janet, I, w- I kind of want to dig into how we can maybe create a playbook to address this threat, right? Is it easy enough to kind of take what we did with um, the threat of global jihadism, right? This this foreign terrorist threat and kind of applying the United States. It, it, to me, right, it, it's not as simple as just kind of taking what we did overseas or trying to counter that threat in the United States and just doing it at home just because they're, uh, they seem to be fundamentally different challenges. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that's a dangerous approach. Um, I, I don't know, you know, I can't even... Um, I always ask this question of how how do we know that the that the trillions of dollars spent on the war on terror was worth it? How do we know how do we know that it was successful? We we don't actually you know we don't actually know, and except that we haven't had a major attack. But is that because many major attacks have been thwarted thanks to our tax dollars, or is that because maybe this wasn't as big of a threat as we thought? Um, I mean, we don't know that. We don't have, we can't, those are, that's top secret. That's classified information, right? So um, I would not want, you know, $4 trillion or whatever to be thrown at a domestic war on terror, which would, which would, I think, turn the United States into a surveillance, into a true surveillance state where every single human being is being looked at. Um, and I wouldn't want to live in that kind of a country. Um, so, but what, uh, so I, I mean, I think that we need to, um, one, um, you know, begin to look at these, to understand these groups, to, um, you know, to, under, to, to not understand their ideology in order to police them, but to understand their ideology in order to understand who they are. Um, there's really not very much scholarship on these, on these organizations, like, like the think tanks. There's not as, really, there's, there's been very little money or had been very little money to look at, at, at you know, issues around white supremacy or domestic terrorism, like, um, you know, to study the neo-Nazis or to study the alt-right or to study recruiting on the internet, you know, all of that I think is beginning, but I mean, DHS pulled funding for some, for a study like that back in 2018 or 2016, 2017, something like that. Um, so, I mean, you know, we need a a kind of a, a, a general effort, a funded effort both in the government and in the private sector to, um, you know, to look at this. I, I, I really, really worry about passing domestic terrorism, like a, passing a new domestic terrorism statute, because those kinds of laws tend to be used against um, the people that the government doesn't like, which are not um, conservatives. <laughs> they tend to be people that are, that are not white or whose political ideology is, is, is to the left of center. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, that's historically, that's what's happened. So I, I worry about that. Um, and 
um, you know, I don't, I, I really, I don't yet really have an answer to that, but I, I what I do think is I just don't think another war on terror against, um, against these domestic enemies is, is necessarily the right way to go. But I do think we have to have a kind of a national conversation around what's going on. Something's going on, you know, Trump is not, Trump didn't cause this. Trump is the sort of the, the manifestation of a lot of stuff. And what happened at the Capitol is the manifestation of, I think, like 20 years of stuff. And I think we have to have a national conversation about that stuff, for lack of a better word, and starting with the war on terror and the impact the war on terror has had and the long reckoning that, you know, this country in some ways is in for. It's, these are, it's a very, this is a complicated topic, but I think that that's really, really important to understand what's been going on. Um, because those people that are involved in this stuff, they, they feel this profoundly. These are, you know, you have, for example, you have a lot of veterans who've joined these groups. Why is that? It's a question I'm actually trying to find out. Why is that? What's, what's so appealing? How are, the, how are veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, including officers, how do they fall down the QAnon hole? I'm really, I'm really eager to find that out, actually. <laughs> It's kind of, it's a puzzle, right? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, we talk about you know in domestic terrorism, and we had to think about the idea of you know a significant quote unquote insider uh, threat. I mean, in the aftermath of uh, the siege on the Capitol, there were reports and photos of you know law enforcement officers who were supposed to be protecting the Capitol, you know, taking selfies with some of the people who were getting in. Some reports uh, about you know them letting people in as well. And, uh, I mean, you know, going back, you know, to the 20th century, the 1950s, 1940s, when we had the KKK, we saw, you know, some law enforcement people being involved with the KKK, right? So, like, is there a significant uh, insider threat with that? And uh, how concerned should we be, you know, with the idea that perhaps there are, like, a couple of people who are supposed to be protecting us who have sympathy you know, for these extreme views. Well, I mean, they've always you've always had people in law enforcement that have had sympathy. I mean, law enforcement itself is fundamentally a conservative. It's conservative. It's enforcing law, right? It's um, there is a it, there is. It's always been a. These are status quo um, organizations, and um, that doesn't mean that it's filled with a bunch of you know raging far-right Republican racists or something like that, right? But it's just, it's just, it is a, there is a bedrock of conservatism within law enforcement and within the military, I think. And so um, you always, and there's always been examples of, um, of, of cops who have enabled racists like the Klan um, or have just stood back and done nothing, which is what we've seen a lot of. We saw that in Charlottesville. We've seen that in a lot of other sort of rallies where the far right and the far left kind of attack one another and the cops don't do anything. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of that. And I, um, you know, I think that, I think it's a huge problem um, that law enforcement has been not just, um, you know, kind of, enabling these people, but joining them. Um, and I think that those, you know, we are now in the process of finding out exactly how big of a problem that is. Um, but, you know, for years now, 
it has been well known to the government. It's been nobody. It's not been a secret to anyone that you that there are these very far right organizations like the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters that are comprised of law enforcement or, or seek to be comprised of law enforcement and military people, and they go after veterans and they go after you know cops and they want them to join them. And their fundamental principle is anti-government, anti a government that they think is is in its progressive policies is somehow uh, anti-American. Mm-hmm. I mean, and again, one of the central challenges to kind of combating extremism in all forms is that in the United States, we have these First Amendment protections, right, where they're, you know, they're very sacred in this country. And so you, you, we can't police ideology, really. I mean, there's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and so, Janet, do, wh- where do you kind of fall uh, in the conversation on addressing this from you know a step zero, right? From the ide- ideological standpoint, um, with with Islamic extremism, we've tried to um, have off ramps for individuals who become radicalized. Is is there a similar way in which we can do that for maybe far right extremism? Um, how, what what are your thoughts on this kind of dichotomy between freedom of speech in the United States and the the threat of extremism? Well, I mean, let me just be clear, the off-ramping that we've done for Islamic extremism or jihadists is very recent. Um, generally, if, if you're a young person who signs on to join the Islamic State, for example, you're going to prison. Um, and there have been multiple, multiple prosecutions of people like that. Or you will cut a deal and wind up um, you know, on probation for many, many years. I mean, it's, it's been very punitive. It has not been, this is not a there is not a rehabilitation approach to this. Um, I think that's that's gotten a much more of a public hearing more recently, very recently. But but for most of the war on terror, that was not the case. Um, so other countries do that. However, um, I think that, and I think that you know there are certainly you know again there was a group um, called Life After Hate that was given a DHS grant and the end of the Obama administration to work on de-radicalizing. Their whole mission is to work on, you know, bringing neo-Nazis, white supremacists out of that movement. And they, they had a big grant from DHS and that grant was, they lost that grant (laughs) in the Trump administration. Um, And so, um, you know, the focus has not been on that at all in the government. I think, you know, but the programs are out there. Um, there are plenty of programs, and there should be more programs to work with with you know people who are um, kind of falling into that mentality. But I think that one of the things that we have to do is to recognize what the mentality is, which means like understanding. It means understanding the ideology. It doesn't mean like policing the ideology, right? But it just means to understand it. And I think what where where we we miss a step is in thinking that if we look at ideology, that means we're policing it instead of looking at it in order to understand it, in order to know what at what point has this become dangerous? At what point do we need to police? You know, for example, somebody who's, you know, you can say whatever you want until you incite violence, until you, you know, you shout fire in a crowded theater, right, so to speak. So um, it is important 
when what happens is if, if law enforcement doesn't doesn't even know what are the steps leading up to that, they will always be caught with a burning theater, <laughs> and they will never be able to prevent that. And I think that um, you know, for all of the money that was spent on counterterrorism, and and on on understanding quote unquote radical Islam, and so much of it was actually kind of erroneous. And so many of the radicalization models were not really accurate at all. They were inaccurate. Um, there was a, a gigantic effort, at least an effort, to try to figure out what was going on. There is no, has been no effort to f- try to figure out what's going on with the far right. No matter how many articles we write, um, no, no matter how many you know arrests are made. And so this is an incident which I hope will spark a conversation of like, what is going on? What's going on with these people? What's going on in this country? What's going on? What do they believe in? You know, what, what exactly do they, and, and why do they believe that? And how do we counter that? I mean, those are all conversations that I really think that, you know, we should be having. Definitely. And, uh, you know, when you talk about the idea that you can't police uh, ideologies, I think one of the big things that many people have been thinking about is the role of social media in the organization of these individuals and groups. Uh, for example, I mean, we just saw the banning of uh, President Trump. Uh, we've seen thousands of uh, accounts sort of being culled to an extent by Twitter and uh, other social media organizations who are now attempting to uh, bring about, like, I think, stricter and tougher enforcement of their existing Twitter rules. But uh, what is your take on the role of social media in these uh, actions, you know, what should they do and how big have they been in perpetuating uh, these sorts of situations? I think social media has been, social media has been huge and um, it has not been very well understood. Its impact has not been really very well understood. And it's, it's, it's even, it's kind of milieu hasn't been well understood. Um, and social media was used, you know, by the way, back in, you know, in the in the early 2010s as a tool of left wing revolution. It was the it was, the you know, transparency movement. It was a way to, you know, to leak documents. It was it facilitated Occupy Wall Street. Um, it facilitated the Arab Spring. So it can be used in, in, a, in what we, you know. What some people would consider very positive ways to to, you know, to inspire democracy. Um, it, it can also be used in a, in a very negative way. And I think that um, the problem with social media is that a, a person can hang out in these chat rooms or wherever and become fully radicalized and no one will know other than not even their families necessarily will know because it's a kind of a virtual existence. Um, and, it, it, you know, one question that... W- I talk about with with people is like at what point does the does the virtual become the real and then sometimes you have with this generation in particular there's always who's always been plugged in it's a very fluid reality you can be online you can be offline like what which part of that reality is more real than the other one um and so I, I and again you know I think we need to sort of really understand it's very hard for people who did not grow up with the internet like me, um, to totally understand that. You know, I was, I was an adult when the internet happened. I was not a child. And, but children, this is part of their, their reality, their mentality. This is the only thing they've ever, you know, they've never known anything other. Um, and I think we need to understand the impact that that has 
on um, on shaping the brain. And so, and there's, you know, again, there's, there, there's been an, a lot of really good writing on this more recently and, and looking at the impact of the internet or social media in war. Um, but this is all kind of, you know, in its first few years of really being discussed in a serious way. Um, in terms of free speech, you know, um, Donald Trump's tweets have incited people to be violent. Um, it's it's I have a I actually have a complicated view of this because I am a big believer in free speech and I would and I believe that we have to permit the worst most noxious speech out there in order to be able to speak freely ourselves. But there's a there's a line, and I think that you know. We really need to look a lot of what has been, um, you know, censored has, these have been organizing platforms for violence. So basically, you know, you have to look at the internet or sort of look at these, these places like say 4chan or, or, you know, or certain chat sites. These are, these are like, um, you know, the, the, the secret hideouts of, People who um, are really interested in, um, you know, in terms of if if these are the ideologically structured rooms, you know, these are people who are very interested in in doing something bad and doing something illegal and doing something that's very, um, you know, not socially acceptable, quote unquote, and who could do something violent. And, you know, within those rooms, you will find violent people. And what I think that what's going on is the recognition that, you know, Parlor, um, aspects of Gab, um, Trump's Twitter, and others have are, are places are you know have have facilitated violence or places where people plan violence, and so yeah you know <laughs> that's I mean that that's um, that needs to be shut down I think you know not that they won't move elsewhere but it's I, I mean I. I Social media has played, I could talk about this for a long time. Social media has played a gigantic role. Um, Social media gave birth to much of what we've seen more more recently. Um, But it's a tool. I mean, and the far right has always been in front of it. You know, the far right used the internet before anybody else did. The far right has always been very involved in using, um, in, in using sort of methodologies that other that those of us in the mainstream may not understand very well because they're breaking the law right and they have to figure out ways to get around what the police would be aware of or what the government might be aware of yeah i mean there's a lot of challenges that you just kind of laid out i mean yeah. one is the, <laughs> right, I mean, it's very complicated everybody it's not the right. answer and don't let anybody tell you there is one it's not linear that's the most important thing this is not linear this is this is a Really complicated, almost like no beginning and end point conversation about, I mean, this, this is not a linear movement and it's not, there's no like, okay, we start here and we end here and we're going to solve the problem. That's not how it works. Yeah. In my view. Mm-hmm. No, I, Based on what I've reported over the years, it's not how it works. Right. So how, when we think about kind of, you know, working with technology and kind of preparing our, our social media and the internet to kind of 
push back against the the formation of these ideologies, the dissemination of information, largely disinformation, as we've seen recently. Uh, what can social media and technology companies do? Um, right, we've seen recently Twitter take action. A bunch of other companies take action to remove profiles to stop. Um, people from disseminating information, from organizing. But as you said, they're, they're going to find another way to do it. And so is there, is there a better way to do it? Are we, or is it just going to be a lot of trial and error until we kind of figure out a good way to regulate them? Of course, there's also the other you know, argument of government stepping in and trying to regulate. We've heard a lot about Section 230, um, you know, instituting liability for these companies. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, there's a lot of sides to these conversations. There is certainly not an easy answer, as, as we've already discussed. But I'm curious to to your thoughts on on what the the, the private sector can do uh, in playing a role to kind of stymie the effect. I mean, again, I'm a little nervous about giving the private sector too much power to set the agenda. Um, and you know, I I, I mean, I, I don't I don't really I, I, to be honest with you, I don't really know. I do know where I've seen the private sector really screw up, um, like with Facebook and Twitter um, allowing blatant disinformation to exist on their platforms because, you know, they, they made money, they got traffic from it. I mean, the, the private, I mean, I think the, the private sector needs to kind of um, decide if it is acting in the public good um, and then come up with, a, with policies around that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not working at Twitter or Facebook, but I would hope that they would, understand what's going on and put in some ways people over profit because what you're seeing, I mean, you know, there is blatant, 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 you know, fake news, real fake news, fake stuff, right? Disinformation. We saw that from the very early days of the Trump administration and the Trump campaign before he decided to invert the idea of fake news and turn it around and say that, that we, we in the media, you know, in the mainstream media were reporting fake news. They were, they were spreading fake news. And, and this was allowed um, because in, in this sort of weird free speech zone of like, well, it's okay to present this alternate reality. But then the alternate reality actually became people's realities. And, and we, these companies have known that now for many, many years. And so, you know, when, when Donald Trump's, you know, tweets are, are, are tagged as some, where he says something that's blatantly false and incendiary and Twitter, ta- you know, sort of says, well, this is a disputed, I mean, you know, the, his election, the election results, he lost the election. Got for how long were they were they saying well this is a disputed claim when he's you know when he claimed to be won the election I mean there has to be you know a kind of agreed upon what's reality and then acting accordingly and I think that these companies have really enabled the creation and manifestation and continuation of an alternate truth and they have to take responsibility for that and I really don't know. I, I'm not a tech person and I don't, I don't cover the tech industry and I don't, I, I just, I don't, I have no, I don't know the players well enough to say this is what I think they should do. But I, I, I do think they bear a tremendous amount of responsibility for allowing an entire alternate narrative to, you know, become a narrative that, you know, Americans seem to believe in. And many people continue to think that the election was rigged. So when we talk about the uh, the Trump effect, and I mean, not merely just the Trump effect, I mean, sometimes we sort of see this all over the globe, right? Like certain leaders, 
spreading this fake news that then motivates uh, a contingent of extremists who take uh, either those messages literally or they take those messages to another uh, level. So how do we sort of assess the impact on, you know, the spread of far-right extremism from, I guess, some of Trump's tweets? Like, I mean, if, say, we did not have Trump's Twitter account and, like, these sorts of messages being, like, you know, pummeled out uh, by these central figures... Uh, would we still see this sort of, uh, you know, getting as bad as it did? I don't think so, actually, because, you know, Trump, Twitter enabled Trump. Twitter gave Trump his own media, essentially, right? He gave, he would go around and he would, and he would um, speak at these rallies. And I mean, well, look, Trump did not get elected because of Twitter in 2016. The media covered every single thing that came out of Trump's mouth because he was like a moving train wreck as far as many people were concerned. It was just, he was like, it was bizarre to watch this. And nobody could in a million years thought that he would win. Um, and so it was, it was like entertainment. And, um, and I was a part of that. I mean, I was, you know, I didn't cover Trump per se, but I, I mean, you know, I watched it happen. I certainly, wa- I turned on the TV and watched those rallies and couldn't believe what was going on. And, uh, you know, it was like you couldn't look away. Right. And so and, and Trump used that and that gave him this massive platform. And then um, as soon as he was elected, the media kind of smartened up and realized, you know, oh my God, you know, we, we did this. This is our, <laughs> we're responsible for this. And we need to dig. We didn't scrutinize him. And so now we're going to dig into everything about him. And they started to challenge everything that he said and call it a lie. Um, or, or, or the New York Times says, you know, he says whatever he says is false. Um, the Washington Post uses the word lie, and um, and so he goes to his own, you know, platform, which is a much more direct platform where he can speak directly to people and tell them exactly what he wants to say. And there's no middleman, and there's nobody interpreting him, and there's nobody reminding people that actually there's no basis of fact in anything he's saying. And so I don't think that the Trump movement that that we just, you know, that, that metastasized to what it's become would have happened um, without Twitter. But hey, Facebook, you know, those, you know, the Russian hacking and Facebook groups, you know, helped him get elected too. I mean, the, the social media has played a big role in Trump's success. But I think in terms of like Twitter, direct, Twitter specifically, um, I, I I don't I don't know if if it would have become quite as gigantic without that Twitter feed. Well, Janet, this has certainly been a, a fantastic conversation. I want to ask you one final question before we wrap up uh, to kind of tie a bow on this conversation. So, how how realistic do you think it is that the United States will adequately address the idea of, of far right extremism? Do you have any optimism given uh, your work and all the things you've you've done in, in an effort to understand? Uh, how the U.S. has has approached it, and also how these groups uh, are forming and the individuals that compose them. I mean, I think that the U.S. will do, you know, it will probably do what it's always done, which is to go after the usual suspects. Um, you know, they're prosecuting Viking Man. You know, they're prosecuting, you know, I think they've arrested the guy that wore the Camp Auschwitz T-shirt. I mean, you know, they're they're going after the guys that that um, that that are the most obvious and, frankly, the least in my, I think probably the least dangerous or worrisome 
Um, and the question I have is, are they going to go after who they really need to go after, which are the zip tie guys? Are they going to, how much effort is going to be spent finding those people, finding those organized, militarized, well-armed, well-trained people, men with a plan to do something? Um, that has not, I mean, historically, the government has has been very good at kind of arresting the rusty nails and putting them in jail, so to speak, right? But they don't actually get at the root. And I don't necessarily, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know to what degree Biden is going to, um, and the Biden administration is going to change that dynamic. Um, but I think that that's what is called for, and you know, like I think we should have a 9/11 style commission on this. I think we should have a national, real conversation around this. Um, I think, that, for example, that you know, six something like six states. I, I don't have this statistic in front of me, but it's six six or eight states in this country require the teaching of the Holocaust in school, and they're the states. The most of those, almost all of those states, are the states with the largest number of Jewish people. I mean, that is, to me, very, very, very telling. You know, you need to teach actual history, reality, um, incidences of, of violent, what happens, you know, when, when ideology becomes violent um, and, and how devastating that can be. You need to teach that to people in, in parts of the country where there, there are no Jews and, and maybe there are no black people and there never have been. And that, those places, there are pockets that exist like that. And, you know, education, we, I mean, I think part of that conversation or that reckoning on the subject is, is, you know, is investing in education and investing in confronting these issues in school and not just being like, you know, let's do diversity training and make sure that everybody is, you know, treated fairly. And, but to talk about, you know, these issues, to talk about extremism, to talk about, you know, this stuff. You know, and I think I would hope that those kinds of conversations are going to be happening, given what just happened. But, you know, this is a it's I think it's a really complicated and and, um, important project. And I really hope that we launch into it. But I I based based on the past, I don't necessarily I'm not super hopeful, but I'd like to be hopeful. I really would. I've never, I've never seen anybody talk about this issue quite as seriously as they are now. So that's a good sign. Definitely. And Janet, uh, on that note, uh, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, you can follow Janet at Janet Reitman on Twitter, J-A-N-E-T-R-E-I-T-M-A-N. Uh, keep track of her writing on the New York Times Magazine. And also keep a you know keep your eyes out for her new book that's coming up, which is going to be on extremism and national security. And oh my god, yeah. I'm writing as fast as I can. I've been <laughs> writing for two years, so, so hopefully it won't take another two years. Um, but yeah, it'll it'll be it, it, it's a it's a it's a project, especially when the news changes so quickly. Yeah, it's, it's kind of. A, <laughs> um, but thank you so much for having me, you guys. Mm -hmm. Thank you. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.